maybe one or two weeks after he passed away, I was driving my older daughter to Crossroads School, to her high school. And I was on the freeway, and I was coming back. And I was so afraid that I would die. I was so afraid that I would be in an accident or something would happen to me, and then my children would be orphans. From Life Atelier Studio, it's real. Stories of adversity, resilience, creativity, and transformation. I'm Diane McDaniel, and on today's show, I'm speaking with Carol Yu. Carol talks about how she coped with her husband's death from cancer while helping her young daughters survive and thrive despite the devastating loss of their father. She explores the important role played by Camp Kesem, a national organization that supports children through and beyond their parents' cancer, and how that organization and her own guidance helped her daughters to follow their passions. Carol also talks about how she found the strength to follow through on her own life dreams, one step at a time. Thank you, Carol, for coming in to chat with me today. Thank you, Diane. All right, let's begin by having you introduce yourself and tell us something you'd like people to know about you. Okay, I'm Carol Yu. I am a mom of two girls, and I like traveling a lot. I have lived in a lot of countries. I was fortunate because my late husband had a job that took us many places. So I've lived in Japan and China. I was born in New Zealand. Oh, wow. Um, my, I'm third generation on that, my father's side. Even my father and my grandmother were born in New Zealand. Oh, interesting. Lived in Italy, lived in Canada. Um, so I really love not only traveling, but living in other countries. Yeah. And I guess for the podcast, what was the first thing you said to me when, I, when you opened the door? You said, for podcasts, you, people can't see this, but I have purple hair. Oh, yeah, <laughs> that's true. And, and uh, matching glasses, which right. is very talented of you <laughs> to get it all together like that. <laughs> all right, so you can picture Carol with her beautiful dark purple hair and her matching purple glasses. <laughs> <laughs> all right, uh, so let's just jump in. In 2007, your uh, then-husband, Georgie, died from a rare type of lung cancer. Your daughters, Elena and Dara, were 13 and 6 years mm-hmm. old at the time. Would you talk about how you coped with his death? Well, he had been diagnosed in 2004, and he'd been given 6 to 12 months. And so... Of course, when you're going through that journey, you really never know when it will end. And we were really fortunate that he lived for three years. And we were able to travel back to Japan, back to Italy. And he also kept traveling to China and Korea. And so life kept going. And he kept just really working. So when he finally... So he was relatively healthy during that? He was. uh, I mean, not really healthy. Right. Well, he he coughed all, you know, he had a very, very bad cough all the time. 
he did keep working. He had an office with 15 people. He was an architect. And he kept going. And that was his way to cope with it. Yeah. And he'd be wiped out when he did his chemo every three weeks. He would be wiped out for one or two days. And then he'd get up and fly to Korea. My goodness. After about two and a half years, then it got worse. And he was in a lot of pain and he was on a lot of medication. I think at one point he was taking 50 pills a day. Wow. And I was having to monitor all that and keep track of it. By that time, the last six months, uh, he was basically in bed all the time and really just sleeping. And so at that point, we knew it was coming closer, but we still, of course, didn't know when he would pass away. After three years, his passing away was, was somewhat unexpected. You never know when it's going to happen. After he died, we had to figure out what to do because I did not have, I was not working. I was taking care of George. And the girls were six and 13. And so I had to just take care of them and just reflect. And physically, it had been very challenging. It really took about two years for me to physically get back to what I was previous to his cancer. And uh, we coped by relying on a family that we met through Camp Kesem. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that must have been terrifying for you to be responsible for your daughters in so many different ways and not working and really having to kind of start from start again in a really diminished state. Right. Yeah, and the most difficult thing, I think, was was really trying to support them while I was going through my own grief and not really knowing the whole time during his whole cancer, I you it, it's so uncertain. Right. And I'd never gone through it before, so how do I, as a mom of two young girls, how do I lead them? How do I support them. And so I, fortunately, we had life insurance. So I was able to just figure that out slowly. Mm -hmm. And so really, all I did after he passed away was just focus on day to day. Things like, you know, what time do I take them to school? What how do we do homework? Watching a lot of food network. Uh, So it was just basically trying not to contemplate too much and just really focus my mind on just the day-to-day mm-hmm. to get through. Right. Yeah. What were your some of your most immediate concerns at that time? I remember maybe one or two weeks after he passed away, I was driving my older daughter to Crossroads School, to her high school, and I was on the freeway and I was coming back and I was so afraid that I would die. Mm. I was so afraid that I would be in an accident or something would happen to me and then my children would be orphans. Right, right, yeah. Yeah, that's the kind of thing we, we just suppress, right? Right. <laughs> Normally, exactly. just try not to think about that. <laughs> and it was just so heightened then, 
Yeah. yeah, of course, because you were all alone and really the one who needed to take care of them. So when you think back to the time after George's death, what are your reflections on how you got through that time? What helped you to remake your life and that of your daughters? There are a few things that really helped us. First, we went to a grief therapy center called Our House, which is here in Los Angeles. And that's a really wonderful organization. They have groups that are specific to whatever age or experience you are in. For example, uh, my youngest daughter was six at the time, so all the other kids in her, in her group were five or six or seven, and they had all lost a parent. Mm. And my group uh, were people who had all lost spouses. Um, all We were all around our early to mid-40s. Right. Yeah, that helped. And then the second organization that really helped was Camp Kesem, which I've mentioned. Right, right. right. So as we talked about, your daughters were really young when they lost their father. What were some of the things that you did beyond the the grief group and, and the camp to try to help them? My older daughter, Elena, was 13, and she was very close to her father. So she had a lot of memories about him. My younger daughter, Dara, was three when he was diagnosed, and six when he passed away. So in coping for both of them was different. So in in, in helping Elena, it was speaking about a lot of the memories that we had with George. We lived in Italy when she was seven and I was pregnant with Dara. And so Elena had a lot of memories of living there, going to school in Italy. So we would look at photos and we would just talk about our life with him. Dara's life experience with George was of him being sick. Right. So for her, it was trying to show her all of those memories that we had had of George when he was well. Hmm. It was really trying to continue showing them his life and, and remembering him that way. Um, it was also not only trying to remember the good, but it was also allowing them to see my sadness and to see my grief. And hopefully by allowing myself to cry in front of them and to be angry in front of them, that they would then in turn be able to experience whatever feelings they had so that they would feel that it was fine. Right, right. The full range of, Mm -hmm. of emotions and experience. So you've mentioned uh, Camp Kesem, which is a national organization that supports children through and beyond their parents' cancer. And Mm -hmm. you've also become involved with the organization as a member of the parent board. Right. Why did you decide to get your family involved, and how has it helped you? So we started becoming involved with Camp Kesem when Elena was nine. And we found out about it through the cancer therapy group at UCLA where George was being treated. It's a 
camp that is at right now about 100 campuses across the United States, university campuses, and it has a twofold uh, mission. First is to support families who have a parent with cancer or who has had cancer. The second mission is to train university students on running a nonprofit. I was told about it by my therapist, and so Elena went um, from when she, you had to you have to be six to go. So Dara, I'm yeah, Dara was only three. So Elena went when she was nine. All of the kids that go, it's a sleepaway camp. So it's a sleepaway camp that you go to for a week during the summer. It's free of charge to the families because they're going through so much, you know, with their own cancer journey and all the medical expenses that, uh, that are that they incur. So Elena went to this camp, and when she came back, it was interesting because she then was able to speak about cancer, and she had friends now whose parents had cancer, and they understood each other. They had counselors that understood them, that supported them, and the counselors keep in touch with the kids throughout the year. There are two or three reunions that they have every year. Kesem means magic, and so it is truly a camp that's magical. It feels like a family, and it gave the kids mentors through the counselors, and it also gave them very good friends that they've kept in touch with. Elena's best friend still is a girl that she's met through the camp. Mm-hmm. It also gave them a way to learn about nonprofits and how to work within finding funding. Well, when Elena first went, she was nine, and at that time, it ended at age 16. Elena, when she finally got to the 16 uh, teen age, she, teen group, she didn't want to not be able to go the next year. So she and her best friend, Quinky Dink, they all have, they all have camp names. Camp names. Yep. <laughs> and you can't, you can't uh, refer to anyone by their real name or else you actually have to go and lick a tree. <laughs> so, so Elena and, so I should say 107, that, that was her name because at the time she thought that 107 was an Olympic breaststroke time. Uh-huh. Uh, so 107 and Quinky Dink, her best friend, when they were 16, during that summer, they decided that they would come up with a CIT program. Mm. And so they actually worked with the National Camp Kesem Development Group and came up with an entire CIT program, which then the following year was implemented at, UC- at the UCLA campus and then subsequently was rolled out at campuses across the country. So Elena really learned a lot about how to, you know, start an organization within an organization and how to carry forward a project. And after that CIT program where she was 16, 16 and 17 or 17 and 18, she then got into UCLA, and she ended up being a camp counselor for the camp mm. for the four years that she was at UCLA. Right. Well, what a what a wonderful story. Yeah. Yeah. It really helped her to uh, blossom in so many different ways. Right. So it really was such a great 
resource for our family. And a lot of the counselors became very good friends, mostly with, uh, with, well, with, uh, with Dara. Um, she cooks with them and still goes, every time she goes to San Francisco, there's a counselor that she meets. So it's been a really great resource for our family. So that's when I decided that I would become involved with first being on the uh, UCLA Parent Advisory Board. I did that for a few years, and then I was asked to be on the National Parent Board. And so I did that for a few years, and, and at that time, Camp Kesem was about 30 campuses, and now in the last five years, it's grown to about 100 campuses. It's, it's a really amazing group, and I really would suggest, if anyone's listening that knows a family that is affected by cancer with kids between the ages of 6 and 18, to have them really look into it. It's a really wonderful, magical place. Yeah, sounds like it. I'll put a, a link to the That'd be great. to the website mm-hmm. um, in the notes. You mentioned that Elena started the CIT, Counselor in Training Program for Kent Kesem, and um, you also mentioned that your younger daughter, Dara, cooks, and so uh, I wanted to ask you about that. They both got involved in kind of career-type activities at a pretty young age. Mm-hmm. Will you just talk about each of them and how they got started? Sure. Yeah, a mother's favorite thing to do, right? Brag <laughs> about children. <laughs> so after George passed away, Dara and I watched a lot of Food Network, and I was always interested in food. And my mother used to teach Chinese cooking back in Indiana, where I grew up. When Dara was eight, uh, I had then remarried. Uh, when Dara was eight, uh, my husband uh, was, an, is, was an actor and received casting calls. So we found one for MasterChef Junior. And so when Dara was eight, we uh, actually told her, let's pretend to play chopped. And so I gave her some blueberries, I gave her some flank steak, and she, I told her, 30 minutes go. And she made a seared flank steak crostini with a blueberry honey cayenne sauce. And I thought, wow, how do you, at eight years old, even think of that? And it's just part of who <laughs> she is. Blueberries and cayenne, I love yeah. it. <laughs> it's part of who she is. And so then actually, well, I guess it was a couple years later. So it was when she was 12 that we found the casting call. And so we applied and made a little video. Scott made a video for her and she got on the show and she got on MasterChef Junior the first season and started, it started with 24 kids and the first show it went down to 12 and each subsequent show (laughs) it kept whittling down and Dara was in the finale and uh, became runner up. So since then, she, it ignited this passion in her for cooking. And had she already been cooking or, or just watching? Well, from when she was eight, she kind of, she started doing these chopped and we would, we would do chopped maybe once every few weeks. And so you got inspired by the show and then moved it into the, right. into the kitchen kind of on your initiation. Right. Yeah. Right. And she wanted to, too. She loved cooking. She always helped me cook. Yeah. Um, do the chopping and the mixing and that kind of thing and baking cookies and all of that. But she really, once she was on the show, that really ignited this passion. And so she 
kept taking it to different places. So, for example, um, I think the the summer after the show, I actually was in New York and was training there to open a new store, which I ha- I still have. And around the corner from the store, I was a franchise for this brand. Um, around the corner from the store in New York was a bakery called Dominique Anzel Bakery. So I went in to see Dominique because he had invented the cronut that year. Oh, yeah. And he made national news, international news about that um, for that invention. So I went to meet him, and Dominique was this generous, very kind gentleman. I talked to him about Dara, and he said, oh, yeah, I know Dara. She made poached pears with uh, miso sauce, and she made spot prawns in a Thai curry. (laughs) And he knew all the recipes that she had made on the show. Wow. And so... Kept an eye on her, huh? he, he (laughs) He knew everything about all the kids on that show. He knew all the recipes they had made. And that was because when he was 16, he, uh, his family was, was very poor, and he had to go to work. And so he has a, and he worked in a restaurant. And so he has this love for children who like to cook. The next couple years, every year, either spring break or summer break, I would take Dara back to New York and she would stage for him. She mm-hmm. would work for him for a few days to a week. And now we actually moved her to a school, uh, our local high school, because she can go to school for half a day and do half uh, the courses also online through the high school. And then she has the afternoons free and Dominique just opened a restaurant and a bakery in LA. And so Dara is on the opening team for that. Wow. And is working three days a week for him. Wow. So so that's that's Dara. So it's it's you know, I guess I didn't and, say And we should mention that she's sixteen now. Yeah, she's sixteen. <laughs> yeah, and I guess and, and then Elena graduated from UCLA in two thousand sixteen and got a six week Getty internship and worked at the Schindler House, which is actually a house that her dad, George, had built a model of that sat in the house for many, many years. Mm. Came full circle that she worked at this place where he had spent a lot of time. Right. And actually, I, now I just remembered, he, he and I got married there. Um, so, <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, so Elena had that uh, six-week internship there, and then she got a job for an artist, Andrea Zittel, out in Joshua Tree. Mm. So uh, also, along with working as one of Andrea's assistants, she also works for a artist consortium called High Desert Test Sites. Elena has worked there for a year and a half now. And so is she is she doing architecture, or what is it that she's... But she, is she so, doing, like, preservation? Well, she, what is it she's so doing? So Elena studied fine arts, um, she did mostly painting and performance art while she was at UCLA. Now, Andrea Zittel has this beautiful 50-acre uh, plot of land out there, gorgeous structures. Andrea does uh, ceramics, and she does weaving, and she does land, large land projects. Mm-hmm. So Elena has learned how to weave 
through her and actually uh, is now part of the AZ West, Andrea Zittel West um, group of women that weave and has just recently gotten two of her weavings into the Whitney Museum store. So she's found a way how to be an artist. Right. And and, and have a job. Right. That's exactly. Yeah. yeah. So we'll see what will happen to her in the future. I think she would like to travel, perhaps go back to get a master's degree. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's amazing. So let's talk a little bit about you and your career. Uh, I know that you have a bachelor's degree in mechanical engineering (laughs) and that you've worked at a number of different jobs in different capacities. Since George's death, you remade your career and began working in fashion which you mentioned that earlier that you have you had a store, a, a franchise, mm-hmm. fashion franchise. So tell us a little bit how you got interested in fashion as a business. Okay, so when I studied engineering, I actually wanted to be in fashion. Mm-hmm. But I come from a conservative Chinese family, and when you're Chinese uh, and conservative, you study engineering, law, or medicine, or business. So I studied engineering and I figured if I could get through that, I could do whatever I wanted. After I graduated, I went to China and I actually taught technical writing for a year in Beijing and then came back and I worked for IBM in sales in Boston and then they moved me out to LA. I did that for a while. I re-met my husband. Uh, I had met him originally in Shanghai, even though he was Canadian. And uh, then I re-met him because he was at UCLA. And we got married, and he was doing his architecture, and he encouraged me to go back to school for fashion. Mm. So I see. So you were actually already going down that path. I was. Yeah, okay. And the interesting thing, too, is when I worked at IBM, they gave me a territory of selling computers to the fashion industry. Mm -hmm. So it was meant to be. It was meant to be, and when I was laid off from IBM after seven years, back in 93, I went to one of my fashion company customers and asked them to give me a job, and I got a job as an assistant designer. Mm. I had already gone back to fashion school, so I was working for IBM during the day, going to school at night, and on weekends I was working for a designer who had a retail space. So I knew I wanted to do that eventually. And so... uh, Do you feel like the mechanical engineering aspect has any connection to how you approach fashion? Is there any um, connection, kind of making things mechanically and making things? It does, because you have to see things three-dimensionally and to be able to figure out technically how do you make a pattern that would fit into a 3D mm-hmm. you know, realm. That I think that helped a lot. And then also, in terms of business, you really, if you have a head for numbers, mm-hmm. then maybe that helps a little bit. Sure. <laughs> After... George passed away, I decided to take the kimonos that I had bought when I lived in Japan with George, and I had about 100 kimonos, and I decided to make purses out of them. So after he passed away, I did that more as a hobby, um, as I was trying to figure out how to support the girls. And I finally did participate in Renegade Craft Fair, Renegade Craft Fair, 
And also, for a short time, I was at the Craft and Folk Art Museum on Wilshire Boulevard. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, the bought, store. I bought one of those kimono. Oh. It wasn't a purse. It was more like a pouch. Right. Yeah. I made pouches and I made kimono yeah. purses. I gave it as a, a, a present to a friend and, and she used it to put her iPhone in for years. Oh, that's great. <laughs> oh, that's good. So I did that for a few years and was really trying to figure out how to scale it. But I was only doing craft fairs and it was too much work to go and set up on weekends and really not make a lot of money. So I was trying to figure out what to do with my fashion career. And for the company, which was called Bao Bao, um, that was the name of the kimono purse company, I would go on a website called M0851. And that is a Canadian brand of leather goods. And I had found them when George and I had lived in Vancouver. Mm-hmm. He is from, he was from Canada, from Vancouver. So we had lived there and I had discovered this brand that I thought was beautiful, clean and modern. And when I was looking for inspiration for my Bao Bao purses, I went on the MO851 website. And then about, I would say now five years ago, I was on the website and a button popped up and it said, own your own store. So I clicked and a week later I spoke with them and a month later I went up there and visited and they offered me the franchise for Los Angeles. Wow. So I started that and the store opened about three and a half years ago and it went well. We won the last two years we've won most loved business on montana avenue in santa monica as voted on by santa monica residents and and sponsored by the newspaper right a very uh well-known street to go shopping right for high-end goods it's nice it's it's it has a lot of boutiques smaller Mm -hmm. boutiques yeah so i listen to my customers a lot because they they voted us as most loved and a lot of them over the last year or so have said to me, Carol, why don't you bring in more items? Because we were selling only purses and only leather jackets. And so I thought, wow, that's a really good idea. Maybe I should think about that. So we actually, just in the last three, four months, we rebranded. So our store is now called Momo Los Angeles after our dog, who was named Momo. (laughs) And so... (laughs) So it's wonderful. We've been um, really well received. I've curated local, mostly local Los Angeles and California brands, and really tried to focus on up and coming designers. So nowadays with the internet, a lot of people go and buy online, it's much easier. Yeah. And the only way brick and mortar can, for me, stay alive is by having a store that's very different and that has unique items that you can't get anywhere else. It's fun and it's really great to find local designers through Instagram or through networking. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It, so that's how you do it mostly is that you're you're looking on Instagram and then you're just working off word of mouth in your sort of fashion exactly. network. Exactly. But it, it, it's 
kind of serendipitous in the way that it works because one day Scott and I, Scott runs the store with me, even though he is an actor and a voiceover actor. He also helps run the store. And we were talking about wanting jeans in the store. And the next day, a guy who lives down the street walks in and has this amazing jean line. So it just works out. I think if you put it out there, then it comes to you. <laughs> is that your uh, is that your business advice? <laughs> uh, my business advice is if you have a store like this, a retail store, is to market, 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 advertise, and get the word out because you can have great products and you can have a lovely store and people can walk in and love all the products, but you have to have foot traffic. Mm-hmm. You have to have a lot of foot traffic. So that's my advice. Right. And how do you how do you do that to um, kind of make your store a destination? We send postcards out to the neighborhood. We live in a uh, upscale neighborhood in Santa Monica or not live, but the store lives in, Mm -hmm. in an upscale area. So we target that neighborhood with postcards quarterly. Uh, We also have great email lists. So I send out emails every I'm not so good at it. I maybe every month, but I should do it every week. Mm-hmm. But we have good events also. We've had architecture lectures, design lectures. We've had authors come in and do book readings. We do a lot of charity events. So people know us as having uh, a heart and not just being a place to buy something. We try to give back to the community. We offer gift cards and products to local charities that that ask Mm -hmm. so you really you're trying to kind of fulfill a couple of different functions that you know other businesses used to like the local bookstore or maybe a cafe or something the place where people can gather right and and exchange ideas or or learn about new things as well as the the items that you're you're selling I think that's really important to build your community. So for example, yesterday at the store, we've had this running community event and we actually asked people to write on our window with with window markers and write what they're thankful for. Mm. So it's a great little event and people love to come by and you see little kids and you know elderly and everyone writing on there what they're thankful for. Yeah, that's lovely. It's a real community, a community space. Mm-hmm. So just in, in wrapping up, I wanted to ask you about reflecting on your life, which has been full of both happiness and, and sadness and many different uh, explorations. If you could send a, a message to your younger self at any age, your choice, what would it be? That's a hard one. Probably two things. Um, I don't know if, if there's any specific age, but I would say even up to, to now at 54, <laughs> to remind myself um, to have patience and to also, even though my whole life has been about giving to others, that I should really also have time for myself, self-care. Uh, that's something that I'm guilty of not doing enough of. So I think that in order to take care of my family and my husband, it's really important for all people who are, have businesses or anyone, I guess, really, to have a family to really take care of yourself 
And that's really what I need to do more of. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Well, it's a perfect message to yourself right now in this season when uh, we can definitely run over a bit uh, to take care of yourself and a good thought for the new year as well. Right. Thank you. Thanks, Carol. That's it for today's episode. Thank you, Carol, for speaking with me about how you remade your life and helped your young daughters to thrive after your husband's death from cancer. If you haven't yet, subscribe to Real with Diane McDaniel wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love to hear from you. Let us know why you listened and what you like about The Real Podcast. Please rate the show and leave a review on iTunes. Follow Real on Facebook at Real with Diane McDaniel and on Twitter at Real the Podcast. Reach us at realthepodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, I'm Diane McDaniel. Thanks for listening.